the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? side chatters i think it's pretty clear by now that we live in a world of secrecy and mystery but we do what we can to scoop up the occasional breadcrumbs and piece together the strange sagas they don't want us to know about and even when the breadcrumbs are scarce one can still look at the sometimes insane lengths various factions of the nefarious few go to keep their secrets and you can tell that they must be hiding something big redacted documents classified for decades missing files official investigations that are clearly cover-ups the illogical lifetime imprisonment of people who just might know something and of course a smattering of mysterious suicides in the wake of whatever it is they're protecting this is a template of patterns that applies to many slices of the conspiracy pie and it's a key component of joseph farrell's latest book hess and the penguins the holocaust antarctica and the strange case of rudolph hess as I'm sure you know, Dr. Farrell is the man behind GizaDeathStar.com and the author of many great books, most with a fascinating interweaving continuity that gets into the evidence of advanced civilizations in the ancient past, the financial goings-on of the world's elite, hidden physics, alchemy and occult sciences, the survival of a post-war Nazi network, schooling projects to dumb down the people, transhumanism, and nearly every ingredient in a good, hearty conspiracy soup. He's high up on my short list of favorites, and today marks his fourth time on THC, here to discuss the latest book, The Mysteries of Antarctica, and the strange but telling twisted web he so accurately refers to as the Hess Mess. So warm yourself by the fire of your choice, and let's get this party started. A scholar of the world's secrets, high-octane speculator, extraordinaire, and parapolitical professor of the highest order, Dr. Joseph Farrell, welcome back to the higher side. Thanks for having me back, Greg. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing it. I am not at all surprised that I really love this latest book, Hess and the Penguins. It's a complex saga with a ton of twists and turns, body doubles, mind control, Antarctic expeditions, and secret coups. It really has everything, man. And it is a lot to unpack in a conversation, but I think the best way to start is really the same way you start the book, because just by examining the facts about Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess's extremely unique post-war imprisonment, that right there is enough to communicate the scale of a pretty big secret, I would say, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think so. You know, Hess died in 1987. I remember it being reported. And, you know, that case always intrigued me. Why was it necessary for the big four allied powers, United States, United Kingdom, France, and the Soviet Union, to keep an entire prison, you know, maintain an entire prison, keep their military guards and an entire medical staff, each had their own medical staff, why was it necessary for them to maintain this strict regime for 21 years after all of the other Nazis had been let out of Spandau prison? Why was it necessary for them to guard this one man? You know, he wasn't a threat to anybody. He was old. He was frail. He was in very bad health. 
and yet they keep up this this charade. So what did Hess know, or conversely, what were they afraid of letting out if he were to be released? You know, the whole thing, the whole thing is just bizarre, <laughs> any way you slice it. Right. And for people who didn't know, like you said, 21 years, he was the only prisoner in this prison. Right. As you point out in the book, to have multiple nations pitching in to keep the prison going for one man is no small thing. And these are nations who were on really tense ground through the Cold War and the yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. But, you know, on this prison, they were in pretty much agreement. Yeah, this is what really sticks out to me, is in spite of all the Cold War tensions, at that time, we were going through the Reagan-Gorbachev era, and there were tensions in that period. And yet, the one thing that keeps the four allied powers united is Rudolf Hess. So in other words, you know, the hydrogen bombs and the missiles might fly, but by golly, we've got to keep our guards posted for this guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so that's, uh, that says it right there. You know, what's the big secret or danger that this guy posed to the Allied powers if they had let him out? And again, you know, they released, here's the problem. They released other big name Nazis, Grand Admiral Dönitz, Grand Admiral Raider, who had also been sentenced to life. Walter Funk, another life sentence fellow that was released early, like Grand Admiral Raider on humanitarian grounds. So in other words, it wasn't as if the Allied powers were committed to, you know, a regime and a doctrine of cruelty to these people. But yet Hess is the one guy that they have to keep locked up. And it gets even stranger because if you go back and remember the way that Hess was treated in German propaganda before and after his flight to Great Britain, before his flight, Hess is, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. The Nazi propaganda organs are, are paying a great deal of attention to him, particularly in the weeks prior to the flight. And then after the flight, all of a sudden, he's denounced as insane, a guy that kind of lost his mind, dabbling in too much occult. And the British are, are willing to go along with this reading. So in other words, you know, he went from deputy Fuhrer to being a nut, literally, <laughs> literally <laughs> overnight. So again, what's the big secret? Why are they afraid of letting this man go? when clearly they were willing to do so in the case of Walter Funk and Grand Admiral Raider. So, you know, again, you know, the questions, the questions start piling on almost as soon as you look at any aspect of what I call the Hess mess, and it doesn't ever let up. And this is probably one reason why so few people write about it. But to give you another idea of the magnitude of the scale of this thing, Greg, the Hess documents were all supposed to be released this year, as were, incidentally, the JFK documents, which, of course, President Trump did release some of those. But, you know, that ought to tell us something of the magnitude of the Hess case. It, you know, he's at least as important as JFK, in other words. And yet the case of Rudolf Hess has not received anything near the attention that Kennedy has. And yet I think it probably is, is one of the most significant stories of the 20th century. Oh, for sure. It's definitely international in scope when you get into it. And it is a truly unique case. And as you said, he died in prison in 1987 at 93 years old. And officially, it was a suicide. But even that's pretty suspect, isn't it? <laughs> 
Well, yeah, this is the other problem. And I have to warn people, and I, I warn them in the book, as you said in the introduction, almost every point of the Hess affair is capable of more than one interpretation or one argument. But the real suspicion begins with his death, because according to the official narrative, he's found by an American guard, a black American guard, whom, of course, Hess hated because he hated black people, you know, being a good Nazi. But he's found by a black American guard, and the narrative says that he supposedly tied a cord from an electric reading lamp to a window latch that was kind of, you know, highly placed on the wall. It was an upper window. And it was in this garden house that they put up for Hess out in the prison courtyard. It's kind of a little place he could just kind of get away to. And he supposedly tied this electric cord around the window latch and then looped it around his neck and tied it there and then fell off a bench that he was sitting on in order to hang himself and commit suicide, okay? The problem, <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a big problem, is that Hess, of course, had a son by the name of Wolf Hess, Wolf Rudiger Hess, and he also had, at that time, a Tunisian male nurse by the name of Abdullah Malawi. And his nurse, who had taken care of him for half a decade, immediately suspected murder for the very simple reason that Hess had extremely bad arthritis. He had to walk with a cane. He had to be helped with walking with people, you know, holding him. And because of his arthritis, he was not able to raise his arms above his shoulder, which he would have had to have done to tie this noose. And additionally, his hands were so arthritic that he also had to have people help him, you know, hold a spoon or a fork so that he could eat. So in other words, the chances of him doing what the narrative says he did in tying this cord around a window latch above his head and then looping it in turn around his neck and tying it off there and then climbing up on this bench and falling off of it to commit suicide are very unlikely. So that raises the question, and I'm definitely one of those that does think that he was probably murdered. That raises the question of who did it and why. <laughs> and Malawi, his, his nurse, says that he saw two guards, American guards, in very ill-fitting uniforms that he had did not recognize on the premises of Spandau Prison. And again, you know, I find that very significant because Malawi would have been very familiar with the normal personnel in all the guard rotations of all the Allied powers, the Russians, the French, the British, and the Americans. He would have known these people and if new personnel had been introduced to the equation, he probably would have been made aware of who they were simply by, you know, the protocols of running that place efficiently. So in other words, there's a lot of suspicious activity on the day of Hess's death. And what's even more interesting is that when Malawi shows up at the prison, when they phone him to tell him that Hess had died and to come right away, well, he comes. Hess is still alive, and he asks these two strange American guards that he doesn't recognize to help him 
performs CPR and tells the, another orderly to run and get the oxygen bottle. The oxygen bottle's brought back. It had been tampered with. There was no oxygen in it. And of course, he, he Malawi said he had checked the oxygen bottle that morning and it was okay. So, you know, there's, there's something suspicious there. So he asked these guards to do CPR and one of the guards supposedly helping him do CPR is applying such pressure to this old man's ribs that he breaks a couple of his ribs. There's some suspicion that he may have been alive even prior to leaving the prison and died subsequently in the British military hospital. But yeah, I think clearly he was murdered. The real question is why? And that, of course, jumps us off into the deep end of the Hess mess. <laughs> it does. And yeah, his nurse makes so many great points, as you point out in the book, and it just doesn't add up at all. And just to back up a little bit, Rudolf Hess has one hell of a bio. It seems like he's basically, he's close to being Hitler's best friend. He's the Nazi officer with the highest level of occult interest. He was born in Alexandria, Egypt, mm. and it's pretty clear he was a member of the Thule Society. Mm -hmm. So not a boring guy. Is there anything more you can say about those occult interests or his beliefs or the man himself? Hess was really the cosmopolitan Nazi, if I can put it that way. He spoke several languages. He spoke French. He spoke English. And, of course, he spoke Arabic. So, in other words, you know, he's a multilingual man. When he arrives in Great Britain, he's, you know, he's conversing with the British in English. He was very accomplished intellectually. His professors in his various academic pursuits after World War I all record that he had good facility with mathematics and history and physics and astronomy and things like this. So he was not a dumb individual. He was probably as smart, if not somewhat a little bit smarter than, than Hermann Goering. So in other words, he was not a stupid man by any stretch of the imagination. The hugely important thing to note about Hess and there are several things. Is First of all, his relationship with Hitler himself was so close that many people to this day kind of argue that they suspect that they may have had some sort of innate or, or repressed homosexual relationship. I don't think that's the case, but, you know, it's out there because their relationship was so close. Hitler and Hess referred to each other in the German as du, which, of course, is the informal address that you use with close friends or family. And, you know, Germans don't, especially at that time, don't extend that privilege lightly. <laughs> so, you know, that's a little measure. And the other thing that most people don't know is that Hess's relationship with Hitler was so close that it was actually Hess who wrote many passages of Mein Kampf especially the passages dealing with geopolitics and the Nazi party and its doctrine. And that flies in the face of the normal narrative that Hess was just simply the secretary typing down what Hitler dictated. This is not the case. In fact, it was Hess that even suggested the title of Mein Kampf. Hitler wanted to title it something like Four Years of Struggle Against Lies, Oppression, and, you know, a, <laughs> yeah. a title. And in other words, a title that hardly rolled off the tongue very easily. So Hess was very instrumental. He was widely suspected at the time when the Nazis took power 
as being the real brains behind the operation. His positions of power within Nazi Germany, if you really investigate and dig into them in detail, are breathtaking because he becomes the so-called deputy for Hitler in charge of the Nazi party. So in other words, think of Hess as kind of in the same position of Stalin inside the Soviet Union, being general secretary of the Communist Party. Well, this is Hess's position in Nazi Germany. He's, he's the one that's in personal charge of the Nazi Party and all of its apparatus and intelligence organizations. He's the one that is vetting bureaucratic appointments to government posts in the Third Reich. He holds several positions in the government as well. He's a Reich minister without portfolio. He's a member of the secret cabinet council, which would be roughly equivalent to our national security council. He is in charge of a number of liaison bureaus between the government and the party. And he's also Reich commissar for all technological development. In other words, this is the guy prior to 1941 that would have known every detail of every aspect of Nazi Black Project's research. So he's an extremely powerful man. Add to this one more thing. Hess is also a morally conflicted man because he's the one that urges Hitler to crack down on the brown shirts, the, the Sturmabteilung, the stormtroopers. He's the one that urges Hitler to crack down on them in response to the army's request to do so. But once Hitler decides to go ahead with this, then it's also Hess that turns around and is arguing with Hitler, heard arguing with Hitler for quite some time, over who should be on the death list and who should not be on the death list. And it's Hess that's urging, well, take this person off, take that person off. So you have the Night of the Long Knives in Nazi Germany in 1935, and after that point, Hess begins to develop the stomach problems that plague him for the rest of his life. And some people think, and I tend to agree, that this is kind of a psychosomatic response to the Night of the Long Knives. And then fast forward a couple of years to 1938 and the Reichskristallnacht, the beginning of the pogrom against the Jews in Nazi Germany, where Jewish shops are looted and synagogues are burned and so on. And of course, this activity continues for some days and weeks after the beginning of it. And it's Hess who is arguing with Hitler to, you know, stop this, rein this in. And again, you see him kind of being morally conflicted about the treatment being meted out to the Jews. Partially, I think this is because he also, in between the wars, became a matriculated student at the University of Munich, where he's studying geopolitics under the Nazi geopolitical guru, Dr. Karl Haushofer. And of course, Haushofer's wife is half Jewish. Mm -hmm. So Hess, you know, like many of these morally conflicted Nazis, Hess extends his personal protection to the Haushofer family, even though, by the same token, it's Hess's signature on the Nuremberg race laws. You know, he has to sign as kind of the witness to these laws in behalf of the Nazi party. So his signature is on the Nuremberg race laws. So you're dealing in other words, I think with a tremendously morally conflicted man that 
is on the one hand part of these these power plays inside of Nazi Germany, and yet once they get started, he's the one urging for some some mitigation and some compassion. So he's he's a tremendously morally conflicted man. Mm. Right on. That's a solid profile of a guy for people who weren't familiar. And now to get back to the overarching story, this is where it gets really complex, but. <laughs> The yeah. most pivotal moment in Hess's story is the infamous flight he took to Scotland to meet with some people. And maybe we'll get into the meat <laughs> of why that flight took place, you know, in a minute. But there is good reason to believe that somewhere during that trip, Hess was either heavily hit with drug-induced mind control programming, replaced with a double who was heavily hit with drug-induced mind control programming, or maybe even both. And I guess... Can you tell us a bit about the evidence to support the idea that the Hess we have after that flight, the Hess who was at the Nuremberg trials even and spent the rest of his life in that prison, mm -hmm. was actually not the real guy? Okay, this is where it gets interesting. I do have to I do have to make one minor correction. The idea that he was replaced as a double during the flight, I don't think is correct. That was actually the theory that was put out by the British physician Hugh Thomas. I think if there was a substitution of a double, it took place after the flight, after the real Hess had landed in Britain and was captured by the British. At some point during the next four years, I think this substitution took place. It would have been much too difficult to pull that off on the Nazi side for various reasons. But getting into the, the question of a double, the first red flag is raised when you look at a letter that he had given to his Tunisian nurse, Abdullah Malawi, to smuggle out of Spandau and pass on to certain people on the outside. Now, presumably that would mean his family or somebody else in, in the post-war Nazi network inside of Germany. Nobody knows really for whom this letter was intended, but Malawi opened it and in this letter, Hess is complaining about, and remember, this is the post-war Hess and Spandau Hess we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Hess is complaining about not having been allowed to smoke during a certain period of his captivity in Great Britain at Mind of Palace. And of course, that should shoot anybody's suspicion meter needle right into the red zone. Because the real Hess didn't smoke. <laughs> you know, he, he was like Hitler. He was absolutely fanatically opposed to smoking. So, you know, that's, that's clue number one, that something is off about Hess. But the real clue for me, and this, this is where we plunge into the deep end again, the real clue for me was that the British researchers, Picknett and Prince, picked up on a detail that I found just utterly fascinating, and that was that when Alan Dulles, the OSS station chief in Zurich, Switzerland, during the war, partner of Sullivan and Cromwell, personally connected to William McKittrick, you know, the, the American president of the Bank of International Settlements during the war, and then subsequently, of course, CIA director and, and member of the Warren Commission, well, Dulles is in Nuremberg after the war, and he wants to see Hess. And he contacts a friend of his to examine Hess because he tells this friend that he suspects that the Hess 
that's in Nuremberg is a double. Now, Pignett and Prince do not say why Dulles suspected this. They simply note that he did. And the physician friend of his that he contacted to examine the Hess in Nuremberg was none other than Dr. Ewan Cameron. And if you're familiar with the story of MK Ultra, the post-war CIA mind control project, Dr. Ewan Cameron was heavily involved in one aspect of that project up in Canada using a process that he called psychic driving, which was based on massive amounts of drug cocktails and sleep and recorded messages that people would be forced to listen to over and over and over again. And what Cameron was trying to do with these experiments was literally to erase one personality in people and replace it with another. So this is the guy that, for whatever reason, Alan Dulles wants to have examine Nuremberg Hess because he suspects is a double. Now, here, there's another little spin to this. The British physician that actually did the official autopsy on Spandau Hess, when he did die, is a fellow by the name of James Malcolm Cameron. And I don't know that anybody else other than me noticed this problem that Ewan Cameron is examining Hess in Nuremberg and another Cameron is doing the official British autopsy when Hess dies. So I did a little digging and discovered that the autopsy physician, James Cameron, went to the same medical school in Glasgow as Dr. Ewan Cameron. So, you know, and it's a tight-knit clan, by the way. You know, we've seen a recent British prime minister <laughs> with, <laughs> with that name. So, in other words, you know, there may be a conduit of information to Dulles through the Cameron clan. I don't know. But certainly Dulles suspected this, and certainly it's very suspicious that he brings in a subsequent mind-control psychiatrist to examine the Nuremberg Hess. And now the interesting part of that story is Dulles sets it all up, but the British refuse to allow Dr. Cameron to examine the prisoner. And what they're looking for are war wounds that Hess had suffered as a soldier in World War One, he was at the Battle of Verdun, which, of course, was just this prolonged bloodbath. And then he was transferred in 1917 to the Eastern Front, where he sustained some truly serious injuries on the left side of his chest and to his left lung. So, you know, he had to convalesce for a number of years. Well, these wounds would have left scars. And basically, what I think Dulles was wanting Cameron to do is look for evidence of these war wounds to establish whether or not this was the real Hess. And the other problem, Greg, with, with Hess in Nuremberg is his behavior is just totally bizarre. He acts like a complete goof half the time. And then towards the end of the trial hearings, he finally drops the goof act and all of a sudden becomes, quote unquote, his old self. And again, we don't know if we're dealing with the real Hess or the fake one, but I suspect a fake one. Because during this whole period that he's acting goofy and sitting there in the dock reading novels, you know, and not paying any attention, and then occasionally interjecting a, a really strange, bizarre comment, the one person 
that suspected something was up was Herman Goering, who, of course, is sitting right next to Hess during the entire entirety of the trials. And on Hess's left is the German foreign minister, former foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop, and behind him is Grand Admiral Dönitz. <laughs> okay, so you've got these big name Nazis, you know, all sitting around Hess. Well, Goering was used by the British and the Americans. They actually brought Goering and Dr. Haushofer into Nuremberg to see if Nuremberg Hess could recognize them. And initially, in both cases, he said no, he didn't recognize them. And Goering, you know, once the trials start and Hess exhibits all this very bizarre behavior, Goering, at one point when the trial is recessed, blurts out in a loud voice so that everybody can hear him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he says, so how about it, Hess? Why don't you tell us your big secret? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I truly think that probably Goering suspected a double as well, because, of course, you know, he was in close contact with Hess on almost a daily basis prior to Hess flying off to Great Britain. And there are a number of pictures, I put them in the book, where you see Goering looking at Hess with either this strange, disgusted, skeptical look on his face, or at one point, he's laughing so hard at Hess that he's covering his face with papers. And, you know, this picture, you just really have to see to believe, because in that picture, Joachim von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister, is kind of leaning forward and He's looking at Hess with this dumbfounded expression on his face, like, are you completely, are, have you completely lost it? And on the other side, Goering is laughing, and behind him, Grand Admiral Dönitz, you can tell, is just glaring at him <laughs> through these sunglasses. So, yeah, you know, these big-name Nazis, I think, suspected something was going on with Hess at Nuremberg, although, you know, they, other than Goering, they kept their mouths shut. So, yeah, there, there's every indication that by the time you get to Nuremberg, Hess or whoever really isn't Hess. It's somebody else. Mm -hmm. And as crazy as that is, I mean, there is plenty of evidence. Like you cited most of it. There's also things like he wouldn't let his family come to see him in prison until 1969. Like what yep. you, you're in prison. I mean, what? A good day is the only day you get to see your family. Why would you hold off on that for a, that long? And also, when his wife did finally see him, she thought his voice got deeper, which is the exact opposite of what happens to a man with old age. Yep, exactly. And obviously, there were other things, but another one I thought was interesting was the strict no photos policy when he was held in Britain. Yep. Just all these things that stack up. And so <laughs> about that trip, <laughs> see, I want to... <laughs> I want to get to the Antarctica stuff, but all of this is important and people really should read the book because I love the story you pieced together. It makes a lot of sense. And it seems like Hess was making that trip to Scotland to meet with elements of a British faction and seemingly maybe seal the deal on a peace plan yeah. that they were working on that certain Nazis and certain elements of the British leadership maybe were hammering out in back channels. Right. And now that trip went awry and it didn't really come to fruition, but if you get all the way to understanding this back channel dealing was going on, which included conversations about getting rid of Hitler and maybe even Churchill, which is a coup or a double coup by definition. Right. And 
I'm glossing over a lot. But if you get to this peace plan, there is a strong reason to believe that Antarctica was a part of that plan. Right. Correct? Well, yeah, let's back up. Yeah, um, yeah. The standard narrative about Hess's flight was that he was going over to Britain because he thought he could negotiate peace with the British. And, of course, the standard narrative paints that as just an impossibility. Nothing like that could ever have happened. And, you know, the guy was nuts to think that he could do this. But when you dig into the details, it's anything but. Because, first of all, both Rudolf Hess and Hermann Goering, they're the number two and three men in Nazi Germany at that time. And of course, in May of 1941, Hitler's getting ready for his big invasion of, of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa. Now, Hess, again, is not a stupid man, and he thinks that this is strategically, at the minimum, very, very risky with the United States looking like it's going to enter the war, you know, American entries looming. And this is the same objection that Hermann Goering had to the invasion of Russia. You know, he's a practical military man, and he's thinking, well, you know, how are we going to take on the Soviet Union and prevail if we are leaving the Americans' forward bases in Great Britain, and Britain's still in the war? So both Hess and Goering sponsored a number of peace initiatives from the fall of France and in Goering's case, actually before the war actually broke out, with Great Britain trying to cinch a deal. Now, in Hess's case, these negotiations appear, and again, the people that did yeoman's work in this respect were the British researchers Picknett and Prince, just a marvelous book. And I think they make their case, and, and I agree with their case, that Hess had used General Haushofer and his connections with the British aristocracy to basically negotiate with that segment in British society, which let's remember, that segment of British society was very, very much wanting an accord with Germany. This was the society that backed Neville Chamberlain and the policy of appeasement, it was heavily represented in the city of London. It was heavily represented in the British aristocracy and therefore in the House of Lords. It was heavily represented behind Lord Halifax and most importantly within the royal family because the abdicated King Edward VIII had dined with the Hesses. He was all in favor of some sort of accommodation with Germany. And this appears to have been more or less the attitude of the royal family, all right? So in other words, that wing or that faction within the British deep state was considerable. It was powerful. It didn't just evaporate when Churchill magically became prime minister in May of, of 1940. So in other words, there is a peace faction in Great Britain, and it's substantial, and it has real power. After all, the royal family is part of this faction. So when Hess flies to Great Britain, unlike the standard narrative, what he is really doing is he has been negotiating with that faction, and Goering has as well, through different channels, and basically an agreement has been hammered out. The basic essentials have been agreed upon. But the problem is 
that on the British side, that faction will not negotiate with Hitler. Okay? Mm -hmm. And on the German side, they don't want to negotiate with Churchill because he wants to continue the war, obviously, and is trying to woo American entry into the war. So what you have is a peace proposal between two factions in Great Britain and Nazi Germany that call for the removal of their heads of government. <laughs> okay? mm -hmm. So I think if you parse all of the diplomatic language that's flying back and forth between Britain and Germany through these back channels, I think what Goering and Hess came to the conclusion is that, okay, if we're going to go ahead with this invasion of the Soviet Union, number one, we have to take Britain out of the war and deny America forward bases. You know, at that point, American entry becomes rather superfluous. There would have been nothing that America really could have done militarily against Nazi Germany, you know, with a transatlantic invasion. That's highly risky. So that peace plan negotiation goes forward, but it also becomes an international double coup d'etat plan. And Hess, if you stop and think about it, Hess is bringing with him a lot of documents that were translated. He had the Nazi Party Auslandsorganisation, which was their foreign intelligence network of the party itself, translating these documents in, into English. So he's bringing a lot of documents with him that never show up on the inventory of stuff that is recovered from him or his aircraft. And the bona fides here, and this is an important point to remember, this is a hugely important point. If you are negotiating with the British that, yes, we're serious, we will replace Hitler, how do you convince them that you're going to do this? Well. You fly the deputy Fuhrer to Great Britain. In other words, he comes as the bona fides of the deal that they're trying to seal. And then once Churchill's removed, you fly Hess back, he and Goering take out Hitler. So in other words, all the dynamics are there for this having been really a kind of international peace plan, international coup d'etat plan against both governments to create a new accommodation between Germany and Great Britain. And you mentioned Antarctica, and this is very crucial. Part of this plan appears to have been, quite literally, a divvying up of the globe into respective spheres of interest for the British Empire and for Germany. And, of course, it was Hermann Goering that had sponsored that Nazi expedition to Antarctica. And at one point, after Hess arrives in Great Britain, and I find this extremely telling, Churchill has one of his personal confidants meet with Hess. And this is the other part of the story that doesn't get mentioned very much. Churchill did take meetings with Hess or have some of his spokesmen meet with Hess for a number of weeks after his capture when Hess was still imprisoned in the Tower of London. So in other words, it appears that this was so serious that even Churchill was at least willing to talk with the guy, although we don't know much about what these talks came to, because again, the files have been sanitized. But we do know that during one of these meetings, 
One of Churchill's representatives asked Hess directly, well, what about Norway? And to me, Greg, that's code for Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Because Goering, when he sent the expedition to Antarctica, the place in Antarctica that they explored was a place that had been previously claimed by Norway called Queen Maud Land. When the expedition returned to Germany, the Norwegian government had lodged a protest with the German foreign ministry that, no, you have no claim on that part of Antarctica, that part is yours. And the German foreign ministry responded that, no, you have no claim because your claim does not extend into the interior as far as ours. We're the ones that explored that part of Antarctica. So in other words, there was a disputed claim between Germany and Norway over a particular region of Antarctica. And then, of course, the war breaks out. And in April of 1940, the Germans invade Norway, you know, and that's that. (laughs) So the Norwegian government, like the Polish government, goes into exile in Great Britain. So I suspect that that query about Norway is really code for the British asking, well, what about your claim in Antarctica? In other words, what are we going to do about all of that rich source of natural resources down there that basically is untapped? And in that case, Hess's response is very intriguing because he says the Fuhrer hasn't pronounced. (laughs) (laughs) which means I'm willing to talk about it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm expecting to be the Fuhrer in, you know, a few few weeks. So, yeah, the whole thing is just an enormously complex thing because if you stop and think about it, if the British and Germans had signed such an accord and if secret protocols in that accord had basically divvied up the world into British and German spheres of influence, then, you know, all of that military might that Germany possessed in 1941 in its totality would have been unleashed on the Soviet Union, you know, with 40-some extra divisions that were left on the Western Front part of the invasion. And Britain, in turn, you know, would have come out of the war with its empire intact, which would have been a very different world than the world that actually emerged after World War II, a very, very different world. So, you know, this is a huge thing. This is a major, major incident in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there was another Nazi officer, Helmut Wolfat, who was also heavily involved with ah, yes. Nazi <laughs> dealings in Antarctica and the peace plan. So that's another indication that yeah. it was a big component. Yeah. Voltat was Goering's minister without portfolio for setting up the Antarctic expedition. He was a state counselor. But interestingly enough, Voltat was the fellow that Goering had appointed during the tense months of 19, you know, the summer of 1939, as, you know, war is looming because Hitler's determined to, you know, solve the Polish question. Voltat was the one that Goering sent to Great Britain to talk with contacts in the city of London about some sort of last-minute peace deal. And it's interesting that with respect to Poland, eventually the Polish government in exile, using its contacts through the royal family, the Duke of Hamilton and so on, 
was talking with the royal family about making one of the members of the royal family king of Poland in a sort of reconstituted Poland. And again, this appears to have been on the agenda as far as Hess was concerned with his peace plan, that they were not opposed to some sort of, you know, puppet rump state in Poland, provided that whoever was in charge of it was someone that they could trust. Well, you know, you're negotiating with the royal family and other members of, of the British deep state. So certainly that probably would have been acceptable, at least to Goering and Hess. So, yeah, this is, you know, what's going on here is is huge. And Hess, I think, is playing the, the key role here because he's the one that has more or less figured out and read the tea leaves of British diplomatic messages correctly that, you know, the British aren't opposed to a peace with Germany. They're simply opposed to a peace with Hitler. In other words, they want Hitler out of there and then we'll talk and conclude something. So this becomes a peace plan, coup d'etat plan. And I definitely think Goering is involved, and I'll tell you why. Goering, after Hess's flight took off from Augsburg, Germany, on the way to Great Britain, Goering calls up the head of air defenses in Western Europe, a Luftwaffe general by the name of Adolf Gallant. And he tells Gallant, you need to scramble your fighters right away. And Gallant says, why? There's, you know, there's nothing coming in on the radar. And Goering says, I'm not talking about anything coming in. I'm talking about something going out. Hmm. The, de the deputy Fuhrer has hijacked a Messerschmitt and he's flying to Great Britain and you need to shoot him down right away. <laughs> and, and of course, Gallant scrambles fighters. But by that time, and this is key, by that time, Hess's Messerschmitt would have been 300 miles ahead any fighters that Gallant was able to scramble. In other words, there was no chance that they could catch up with him and, and shoot him down. Now, it's interesting because, number one, Goering's phone call clearly indicates that he knew about the plan. So the real question is, why is Goering calling up Gallant? And I suspect that he's calling him up at a time when he knows that Hess cannot be shot down because he wants to, you know, he wants to cover his you-know-what in case the whole thing should go wrong. Oh, I heard about it, and I tried to stop it, you know. But a day later, when he's summoned to Berchtesgaden, you know, when Hitler's trying to deal with the crisis that Hess's flight has caused him, Goering pretends that he knows nothing about it at all. Hmm. So that's a little clue right there that, yeah, Goering is in on this to some degree, and I suspect to a great degree because we have to ask ourselves another question. <laughs> Hess is flying a twin-engine Messerschmitt 110 from Augsburg, Germany, on an unauthorized flight into Scotland where he hopes to meet some of these members of the Scottish aristocracy who will give him entree into the royal family, okay? And it's important to note, when Hess lands in Great Britain, he actually says he's coming under a flag of truce from the king himself, mm -hmm. okay? <laughs> so that ought to clean it in. But anyway, the real problem is, how does Hess manage to fly on an unauthorized flight through the air defenses of Nazi Germany? <laughs> and, of course, the answer is the only way he can do so is if he has inside information that permits him to do so. 
and people smoothing the way for him. Well, it turns out that the maps that Hess took with him were given to him by guess who? Hitler's pilot. (laughs) And of course, if a Luftwaffe general who happens to be Hitler's pilot is giving you maps of the air defenses of Germany, this has to come from Reichsmarschall Goering himself and from within Hitler's command structure. So in other words, you know, Reichsmarschall Goering. And then the other question is, okay, you've got a Messerschmitt 110 approaching northern Scotland. How is it that the RAF only sends up two or three fighters (laughs) to, to intercept this German plane coming in? And again, it looks as if the RAF had been told to stand down. And in fact, I point out in the book that some of the fighters that were scrambled we're told to stand down. Don't shoot it down. Hmm. So in other words, the British are expecting him. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this, this is a, you know, that says right there that this is an internationally coordinated, carefully planned plot. Mm-hmm. The only thing that goes wrong is that Hess missed a beacon checkpoint and therefore used up some of his fuel. And when he bails out over Scotland, parachutes out of his Messerschmitt 110, he's captured by the wrong people. In other words, he didn't make his meeting with the right people. And on and on we could go. You know, it, the devil's in the detail. There's there's a lot of details in the book. Absolutely. It's so complex, but that is definitely a good crash course, and I just love it. Now, the Nazi Antarctic expedition was in 38-39. Correct. Then the war ends, and then in 1946-47, we have Operation High Jump. Right. How do you think these events could be connected to each other and possibly to Hess's prison situation? All right. As I said, Hess was in a position of such power inside of Nazi Germany prior to his flight that virtually nothing happened. He was the Martin Bormann of that era. And in fact, it was Hess that brought Bormann into the Nazi party as his secretary. In other words, he was the talent spotter there, folks. So in other words, you know, the subsequent behind-the-scenes reign of Martin Bormann in the second half of the war was really due to Rudolf Hess. So that should give you another measure of the man that you're dealing with. Hess is in a position of such power prior to his flight that whatever that Antarctic expedition, which was part of a economic plan, it was part of a technological plan, Hess would have known about it. So if it found anything down there that was classified on the expedition's return, Hess would have known about it. And he would have been one of the few people in Nazi Germany that would have known about it. In fact, I think that you're dealing there with a case of if anything was found, and again, please note my if, Mm -hmm. if anything was found by that expedition, the crew itself would have been placed under, you know, secrecy commitments and told not to talk about it. And then probably the only other people that did know whatever was found there would have been Hitler and Goering and Hess. I don't even think Himmler would have known at that point. 
So it was, if anything was found, and please again note my caveat, but I do think that something was found because the American reaction with Operation High Jump after the war, to me, is directly connected because the American explanations for High Jump make no sense, <laughs> okay? We were told at the time, and then Admiral Byrd, after the expedition had returned from Antarctica, wrote this big 100-plus page article for the National Geographic that, well, we really went down there because one of the big theaters of the next war, you know, with the Soviet Union and the Communist bloc will be in the Arctic and blah, blah, blah. Well, we went down there to train and test our tactics and equipment. That's the story. That's the cover. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, my word, you don't need to outfit a battalion of Marines and an entire flotilla, including an aircraft carrier and a submarine, to test equipment bearing the expense of that in Antarctica. You can do that in Alaska. <laughs> exactly. Canada's an ally, and guess what? They've got roads up there, you know. So, mm -hmm. so you know, if we're going to test equipment, then the logical cheapest place to do it would have been Alaska and Canada. But no, we've got to outfit a fleet to sail 8,000 miles down to Antarctica <laughs> to test our equipment down there. So in other words, yeah, I suspect this is a cover story. And I suspect that whatever we were doing down there, its secret purpose had to do with the German expedition. So what might that have been? Well, like the German expedition, our expedition was to make photogrammetric surveys of the continent. In other words, aircraft taking pictures of the surface of Antarctica and then assembling all these pictures into more accurate and reliable maps. Okay. I suspect that it is entirely possible that as they're doing this, they may have snapped pictures that gave them some pause <laughs> that, that, you know, they may have seen something that looked artificial or maybe seen interesting geological features that indicated the presence of rare mineral deposits, or something of this nature that would have caused the secrecy to be clamped down. Now, with the American expedition, there is one more thing that we need to be aware of, and this is the people involved in the planning of the expedition. They were none other than Fleet Admiral Nimitz and the then Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal. Mm -hmm. And if you're one of those that believes there's something fishy about the so-called suicide of Secretary Forrestal, I'm certainly one of those people. I don't think it has anything to do with UFOs like a lot of people do. I think it has to do with Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> that is so interesting. And for people who don't know, he apparently made a makeshift noose out of towels and jumped out of a hospital window. That's the story. Yeah, he jumped out of, you know, he he dies at Bethesda Hospital. He jumps out of, supposedly, mm -hmm. you know, the 16th floor window. And there's so much to call that into question. There's actually a book out, and I've been trying to find it, that somebody wrote about the three mysterious deaths, that incidents or mysterious goings on at Bethesda regarding President Kennedy, regarding Senator McCarthy, and regarding Secretary Forrestal. 
and I wish I could remember the name of the book because there is a researcher out there that's been digging into that whole weird relationship. But yeah, Forrestal, you know, supposedly takes this tumble out, <laughs> out, of his, out of his bedroom window. And to be sure, he was acting mighty strange towards the end of his life. But he certainly wasn't acting strange or suicidal on the night that this happened. So yeah, I suspect that there's something going on with Antarctica that became known to the Nazis at the time and then was suspected by the American command after the war and perhaps became known to them as well as a result of their expedition down there. The whole thing is just very, very strange. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. And as you know, in the book, for a long time, you were resistant to the idea of a Nazi base in Antarctica because of the scale of the operation and the resources required to jumpstart that, to get the power right. going, etc. Right. You know, it's a huge undertaking. Right. Well, let me get weird on you for a minute. As a guy who considers the hollow earth ideas, the subterranean worlds, that's a real guilty pleasure. And you know, what if, what if rumors of lush tropical underground areas are true or the findings like the underground Lake Vostok are, or maybe that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, what if the project of a Nazi base was more like American colonization where they were just able to use the resources that were there when they arrived or perhaps even ancient structures and exotic energy sources? Do you consider any of that possible at this point? Well, I have yet to be convinced of any of that. Mm -hmm. I, I have no doubt that the Germans may have found warm water springs. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that they may have done this and that they may have found subterranean caverns and so on and so forth. My biggest problem with this whole idea of Nazi bases remains in the scale that the Nazi last battalion people want people to believe. They want us to believe there were submarine pens. In some versions of it, they want us to believe that there were secret flying saucer research facilities there, and on and on this goes. And I say this is just nonsense for the pure and simple reason that for the German Kriegsmarine, for the German Navy, to have built and maintained logistically such a base so shortly before the outbreak of World War II. In other words, the expedition returns in early 1939. War breaks out in September of 1939. So in other words, even if you do make use of energy that may be there with geothermal springs or what have you, you still have to haul the equipment down there and you have to haul enough technicians down there and then sustain them. And this, to me, is utterly beyond the capability of the German Navy at that time. It would have taxed their resources beyond its operational capability. And even with high jump, let's remember that vast expenditure that we lavished on that expedition still was only able to send a flotilla of about 21 ships and a battalion of Marines. And that's the United States. And that's without a war going on in the process. So no, I don't think it's possible for there to have been a base there that the Germans maintained, like all of these last myth battalion stories that you hear. And I want to point out to people that those stories 
ultimately begin to be circulated after the war from crowds that are associated with neo-Nazis. Now, I've referred to these people in my books over the years. I certainly have. But the the problem is that, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to lay out a story that takes several books to explain. You know, I mm-hmm. no one wants to read a 5000 page book. You know? <laughs> so I, I just never have bought this idea simply from the logistical standpoint of doing this. As I've pointed out in a previous book, Nazi International, if you're looking for an enclave of Nazis that are up to all sorts of no good, including secret research, the place that all of the evidence leads you to is not Antarctica, which I think is a bit of perhaps deliberate deflection. It's southern Argentina. That's where the stuff is going on. So, no, I've never bought this secret base thing. Could they have discovered, you know, lakes and so on? Sure. But I suspect the discovery was more on the order of being indicated to them by the photos that they were taking of the continent than by any actual human exploration. We have to remember that German expedition was one seaplane tender with a crew of about 50. Mm. So in other words, even to require that kind of discovery, you would have to have a much larger expedition in order to do it. It was a very, very small expedition that went down there. Hmm. Yeah, the Argentina thing is definitely something to look at. Peter Lavenda, of course, has his famous story of actually interacting with Nazis in Argentina, it seems. It was Chile. It was Chile. Oh, Chile. My bad. Yeah. He interacted with the people in and around the former Colonia Dignidad, which is down around the city of Paral. That's who he interacted with. The Argentinian side of the story has been brought out in my books. It's been brought out by an American naval commander by the name of Harry Cooper, who's been in actual contact with some of those people or their families in that region of Argentina. So, yeah, it's a big, big... It's not Nazis hiding out in grass huts in the Amazon basin down (laughs) down there. It's, It's a much more organized affair, I can assure you. Fair enough. So the suggestion is more that maybe the Nazis saw something on this expedition and then possibly word got out in small circles and Admiral Byrd was sent to reinvestigate? I suspect that that even if they didn't have intelligence, that they suspected. And if they suspected something like that, that would have been reason enough for them to go there. Now, Having said all of this about bases, I don't rule out that that may have been a factor in their thinking. Right. I don't rule that out because Byrd did give that very strange statement to El Mercurio, the Santiago newspaper, which to this day I think is a strange statement no matter how people try and spin it away. And trust me, they've been trying to spin it away for a long time. I do think that this was partly a, a factor in their thinking, but I suspect in order to mount an expedition that large that they may have had some intelligence from somewhere about it. By that time, they may have learned it from captured SS archives. Who knows? I, I don't know where they may have found out, but I think they probably had intelligence. Otherwise, you're not going to mount a whole expedition to go down there. You would send something smaller and and look for indications or confirmations before you sent something that large. Right. And the Santiago newspaper thing is just so interesting because it's like he purposefully 
said something to this reporter before he came home and knew he was going to be told to keep silent. It seems like that's what I would think is he's doing. Yeah, I think so, too. You have academic spin trying to say, well, he wasn't really talking about that or it's being mistranslated, blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is he's still talking about fighters flying from pole to pole with tremendous speed and the United States has to defend itself against that. Well, you don't say something like that in the context of an Antarctic expedition if you're worried about the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union isn't going to fly its airplanes around the South Pole to get at the United States. In fact, they probably couldn't fly them <laughs> over the South Pole. It's going to be over the North Pole. So who's he talking about? And that's the problem. So in other words, you know, it, it's a bit of, to me, it's very frustrating to see these kinds of academic denials because, you know, what they're really doing is they're avoiding the obvious question that's staring them right in the face. What is Bird talking about? <laughs> you know, and who is he talking about? Right. Well, Jesus, man, I guess I can't keep you here forever. But I will say all I want for Christmas is confirmation of subterranean worlds in Antarctica inhabited by humans from a previous <laughs> age, aliens, or UFO flying Nazis. So fingers crossed. Good luck with that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, either way, Dr. Farrell, you are the goddamn man. I always love to hear that you have a book coming out. Loved our last conversation about the Common Core book as well. And remind the people where they can follow up on your work, become a member of your site, and any other future projects that you might have coming. They can get the books from Amazon. I haven't, still haven't put the Hess book up on my web store, but they can get it from Amazon. And the website itself is www.gizadeathstar.com. Become a geezer. That's what we're calling ourselves now. <laughs> Geezers. Nice. Become a geezer. There's lots of stuff in the members area, webinars and bid chats and a few papers and so on. So we have a good time. Perfect. Well, I consider you the head custodian of mopping up the Hess mess. So great job <laughs> and take care of yourself out there. You too. Thank you, Greg, for having me back. You got it. Holy snokes and happy holidays, people. Another wild ride with one of my favorite guests, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. All right. All right. I cannot complain about that. Always excited to record and release a Joseph Farrell interview. I think this is his fourth time coming on. The first one about money and alchemy and the financial vipers of Venice is hard to beat. And the last one about Common Core teaching curriculum is also really solid, if you ask me. But I think an expose on the top Nazi occultist isn't bad either. And it's a long and winding road to get there, but when we do we end up with a decent amount of circumstantial evidence that something related to Antarctica was on the table. And someone's keeping secrets. <laughs> there is just so much to this story, and so much to the Hess and the Penguins book itself. Stuff we didn't even get to, like the fact that so many alternative folks talk about the Holocaust and that six million number, and that it was used well before the actual final solution. Well, Joseph Farrell tracks and vets those claims pretty thoroughly in the book. He also talks about Zionist collusion in the mix and a lot of other threads and side stories that are just as mind-blowing, really. When you think about how, at any point in the story that had a zig there, it could have been a zag, and everything would have been just radically different today. I would also say go over to YouTube and watch some clips of Hess at Nuremberg now that you know all this stuff, because it's fascinating to watch. 
and I would just play a clip or two from his speech for you here, but most of the clips are, of course, in German with English subtitles rather than an English translation. So just check it out for yourself. I also realize this might come off as a show more about what we don't know than what we do, but context is everything, and with the first hour's context, we then spent the second hour speculating on what that secret could be, wildly speculating on my part and maybe more reasonably on Dr. Farrell's part. We might not know the secret itself, but just look at how Hess was uniquely held in captivity and then seemingly murdered, and then look at James Forrestal and Richard Byrd Jr.'s deaths. I think those are parts from the Plus show, but we have a smattering of murder-suicides and what looks like an attempt to keep something under wraps, something big. But this is one where the full show is so key, because again, hour one tells the tale itself, and then hour two is getting into Operation High Jump a bit more, that suspicious and untimely death of Richard Byrd Jr., Antarctica's strangeness in modern times, and the long list of abnormal visitors. We talked about Atlantis and the prospect of Antarctica holding the secrets to an ancient advanced civilization, neutrino detectors, the interconnectedness of recent hacking stories and how they might signal the reemergence of a breakaway civilization. And then, as usual, I break the narrative and ask Dr. Farrell just some one-offs about current events and things that I've seen him commenting on, like the mysterious QAnon writings and the prospect of them being AI-driven how Dr. Farrell looks at and interprets the Mandela effect, and of course, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Man, I do just love this episode. If you're still just listening to the free show week after week, I think it's time you consider signing up for Plus, because it's like you're only watching half the movie. It's Christmas time. Help me help you. The Hiresidechatsplus.com. Five bucks for five shows a month or 60 bucks for a year. You can also sign up through Patreon if you must. But either way, the year's coming to a close. I don't say this stuff often, but review me where you can. Share this where you can. Tell our best guests that you liked them being on so they know to keep THC in their rotation. And tell your favorite shows it's time to have Greg Carlwood on. I've talked to a lot of my fellow podcasters who are getting agents and hiring PR representation and I would never want to find myself spending money on that type of stuff. But I also have to keep up with everyone else. I want the sharing and promotion of the show to be organic just because people like it. Not because I started paying some firm a couple hundred bucks a month. I'm not going to do that. Let's stick with the collective power of a passionate audience. And I hate to ask you to do more than just listen. But the more collective help I can garner, it's just true. The better guests I'm able to get, the better show I'm able to make. It's the goddamn circle of life. But either way, things are great. We got no worries. Well, we do, but we're trying to maintain that positive polarity in some seriously troubling times, all right? Enjoy your friends and family. Let the differences slide. Be the better person and just have a good going out for 2017. Two more shows coming at you really soon. The next one is a great look into MKUltra, trauma-based mind control, and satanic ritual abuse with a professional clinical psychologist who studied it intensely. 
a lot of you thought Jay Parker was pretty out there, even though he is right about so many things. His personal story can be a lot to take in. So now we're going to look at that type of thing from a more measured perspective, but it no doubt fits with that episode as well. Really excited to lay that one on you. Brace yourself. I'll see you then. I've done my part. Your move, secret keepers of the breakaway civilization, Nazi internationals, and custodians of the Antarctic underground. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a whole got a neat elevator. Going under, and now you'll find me. In the bunker Take it under.